Father, I have enjoyed worship today. I hope you have as well. You are the point of our worship. You are the reason that we worship, and you are the one that we worship. And now as we open our Bibles, what we're asking is that you will allow us to see the truth of Scripture, that you'll allow us to see your heart and your desire for us. And I'm praying, Father, that you'll stretch us, every one of us. You've already stretched me through the things that I've seen preparing for this. Father, I pray that you'll do the same for everyone that hears it. In Jesus' name, amen. There are periods in history that I really like. I'm a big fan of biblical history. I know that doesn't surprise you much. I'm a preacher, for heaven's sakes. I should be a big fan of biblical history. Then I'm a big fan of a, a period of history within our country. I really like the Old West. I know that that doesn't surprise you either particularly that time around the Civil War. My wife's a big fan of that period as well. It's kind of interesting, though. I like everything west of the Mississippi. She likes everything east of the Mississippi, where it comes to that period. But one of the things that has always struck me as interesting is that between biblical history, the end of the writing of the Bible, and the beginning of the frontier, or the beginning of the Old West, I haven't cared much for that period. I just have never paid much attention to it. I don't like watching movies that come out of that genre. I just It just does nothing for me. The Middle Ages, the Dark Ages, I, I just have never gotten real excited about it. Even though I have never been excited about it, there are still some great stories that come from those years. There are some great people that lived during those years, some inspiring things that happened. And if we pay attention to them, even if we don't really like that, we can still learn a great deal. Some of those people that come out of that era, the dark era, the dark ages and the the middle ages, are people like William Wallace. If you've seen the movie Braveheart, you're familiar with him. And a lot of people are, are familiar with his story because Hollywood grabbed hold of it. But during the time that William Wallace was alive and the the depiction that we saw in the movie of Braveheart by Mel Gibson, though it's inspiring and though it's real, there were other people just like him living during that time. People like Robert the Bruce. If you study William Wallace's life out, you'll stumble across Robert the Bruce. For a long period of time, he was a nemesis of Wallace's. They didn't get along. He didn't agree with what Wallace was trying to accomplish in Scotland. He didn't agree with that drive towards freedom, so he would try to stop it. But then he became a believer in what Wallace was trying to get across to people. He became a believer in the movement that Wallace had started. And after Wallace died, Robert the Bruce, isn't that an interesting name? The Bruce is like a title. I don't know what that means. But Robert the Bruce took up the battle that Wallace left. He began to carry on the same crusade, and he was passionate about it passionate about it in the year 1329 though he died he knew he was going to die the people that were close to him knew that he was going to die he was 54 years old great warrior he had led people into battle time and time again and when he was laying on his deathbed he called the people that were very close to him to come and listen to his last words and they did when a person laying on their deathbed has last words to share, everybody wants to listen, man, woman, doesn't matter. You want to hear what they have to say. So his friends and his family crowded next to Robert's bed and they listened as he opened his mouth and shared his heart. This is what he said. This is incredible. He said, when I die, after I am gone, I want someone to remove my heart from my body and I want it to be given to a special night that will continue to carry my heart into battle. Wow, interesting story. 
he had a friend named James Robinson, that was, or James Douglas, that was standing next to the bed. And Douglas heard that request from Robert. And he said, I will be just such a knight. And when, when Robert died, Douglas made sure that his heart was taken from his body. He had it embalmed and placed in a container. And he wore that container around his neck so that Robert's heart would always hang next to his. And for a year, as Douglas went into all kinds of different campaigns, all kinds of battles, that's exactly where Robert's heart hung, going into battle. One year later, in the year 1330, Douglas had led a campaign from Scotland to Spain to fight against the Moors. And just as they were in the throes of the battle, everything turned on them, and it looked like Douglas was going to die. He knew he would not survive the battle. Everybody else knew he would not survive the battle. And this is what he did. He reached behind his armor, and he pulled out that container that had Robert's heart in it. And he held it up in front of all of the other warriors that were fighting with him. And as loud as he could, holding that heart above them, he yelled, Fight for the heart of your king! Fight for the heart of your king! One historian actually says he said this, Forward, brave heart! into whate'er thou has want to do, and Douglas will follow your heart or die. That's a great story. It really is. Fight for the heart of your king. And he held it up in front of him. There are some historians that say he actually took that heart and threw it at the enemy, and the rest of the warriors that were with him charged into battle, fighting for the heart of their king, carrying on that campaign, knowing how important it was not only to Robert, but to Douglas, and they were willing to do whatever was necessary. Fight for the heart of your king. And I tell you that story not just because it's kind of entertaining. I don't tell you that story just because I think it's a cool one. I tell you that story because I believe that if James Douglas had been a Christian, he would have done the exact same thing. He would have held up the heart of Jesus and said, fight for the heart of your king. He would have held forward the things of God and said, fight for your king. And it wouldn't just be any king. It would be the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And he would have held it up and said, onward, forward, fight for the heart of your king. If I understand right, the person that is in charge of the nation of Scotland today comes from Douglas's line. And the motto of their clan, the motto of their family is simply forward based on that very story. What if he had been a Christian? Everybody after him would have had that same motto, forward, fight for the heart of your king. They would have been beautiful illustrations of this passage of scripture in Matthew chapter 11. I shared this with you a few weeks ago as we were leading into Christmas. It has become an enthralling verse for me these past few months. I stumbled across it again. I've read the, the Gospel of Matthew a number of times. I have read this verse a number of times, but it has just recently jumped out at me. I want to share it with you again. Matthew chapter 11, verse 12. These are Jesus' words. If you're reading from a red-letter edition of the Bible, these would be read. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing, and forceful men lay hold of it. We could also read it this way. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of God has been forcefully advancing and forceful men and women lay hold of it. Men and women that have a heart, just like James Douglas, to fight for the heart of their king. Whatever it takes, fight for the heart of their king. That's how the kingdom of God has been built. 
Jesus says from the time of John the Baptist, that's the way the church got its foundation. That's the way the New Testament church, the one that we live in today, got started because forceful men and women were willing to advance the kingdom, oftentimes forcefully. And that has not just been true in the New Testament, it is true in the Old Testament. God has always found men and women just like James Douglas that are willing to fight for the heart of their king, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. I want to show you one of those men back in the Old Testament. Maybe you've never really paid attention to his life, but you should. He's one of these men that would forcefully advance the kingdom of heaven and would forcefully lay hold of it. Tina's going to help with this. If you have a Bible with you, I'm going to ask you to go to the Old Testament book of Judges. Judges chapter 11. We're going to break up this story just a little bit, but I want you to see it in your own Bibles so that you can follow this all the way through. Judges chapter 11, starting in verse 1. Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty warrior. His father was Gilead. His mother was a prostitute. Gilead's wife also bore him sons, and when they were grown up, they drove Jephthah away. You are not going to get any inheritance in our family, they said, because you are the son of another woman. So Jephthah fled from his brothers and settled in the land of Tob, where a group of adventurers gathered around him and followed him. Jephthah did not have a great start in life. You heard exactly how it began for him. His father went to be with a prostitute. She became pregnant and gave birth to Jephthah. Now apparently his dad was an upright man and he brought Jephthah back into his house and he raised him as his son. But he was married. When his wife began to bear children, those children got upset with Jephthah. They didn't believe that he belonged in the family. When Gilead, their father, died, all of the other children said to Jephthah, you have no part in this family and you will have no part of this inheritance. And they drove him away. It has never been lost on me that God has the ability to use men and women that have not come from great starts. He does not always require that you have had a great background in order to use you. In fact, as you go through the Bible, oftentimes what you'll find is that God uses people that come from backgrounds just like Jephthah's. Because God doesn't look at anybody and say that your resume has to include being raised in a Christian home. That you have to have 20, 30, 40 years of experience with the Lord in order for God to use you. No matter what your background is, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ and you are sold out for Him, God can put you in the front lines. That's exactly what happened. Jephthah, even though the Bible says in verse 1, he was a mighty warrior, he listened to what they said, he respected their wishes, and he left the land of Gilead the land of his father. He went to a distant land called Tob, and there he began to assemble warriors. The Bible says that they were adventuresome men. Some Bibles say that they were actually bandits. They didn't come from the best background either. They just knew about his history. They had heard the rumors of what Jephthah could accomplish. They knew he was a mighty warrior, and they wanted to hook up with him. So they did. What his brothers did not realize is that God's hand was on him. Pick up with us in verse 4. Sometime later, when the Ammonites made war on Israel, the elders of Gilead went to get Jephthah from the land of Tob. Come, they said, be our commander, so we can fight the Ammonites. Jephthah said to them, Didn't you hate me and drive me from my father's house? Why do you come to me now when you're in trouble? The elders of Gilead said to him, Nevertheless, we are turning to you now. 
Come with us to fight the Ammonites, and you will be our head over all who live in Gilead. Jephthah answered, Suppose you take me back to fight the Ammonites, and the Lord gives them to me. Will I really be your head? The elders of Gilead replied, The Lord is our witness. We will certainly do as you say. So Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead, and the people made him head and commander over them. And he repeated all his words before the Lord in Mizpah. Jephthah lived during a time that was referred to as the time of the judges. The judges were put in charge of the nation of Israel, God's land, before they had a king. Each one of the judges had this mighty warrior spirit about them. Jephthah was no different. When God's hand came to rest on them, God would give them great missions to accomplish. He would give them a great vision, and he would give them the tools that they needed to get the job done. Now all of a sudden, the elders of the land of Gilead, those would be Jephthah's brothers, realized they needed somebody just like him. They went to the land of Tob and asked him to come back. Why don't you come back and be our leader? Why don't you come back and get us out of the trouble that we're in? Because the Ammonites were crushing them. They had surrounded them. They were destroying them. They needed somebody's help. They needed God's help. And I love what Jephthah says. If I come back, you going to do what I say? If I come back, are you just going to let me win the victory and then drive me out of your land again? Am I going to be worthless to you again? If you really want me to come back, then you better do what I say and you better understand that I will give credit to God for what is accomplished. And they said, it will be as you say. And he told the Lord, it will be as you say. Now, Jephthah was a great leader. He was a mighty warrior, but he was also a great leader. So when he came back into God's land, he didn't just go to war. That was not his first reaction. That was not his instant thought. Instead, what he did was try to resolve the whole conflict peacefully. So he sent a series of letters to the kings of the Ammonites, and he explained to them why this land was not theirs and why the Israelites had the right to take it and why they needed to drive them out. And he gave them the opportunity to peacefully leave. They didn't do it. Here's an excerpt from one of those letters. We're going to go to verse 21. Then the Lord, the God of Israel, gave Sihon and all his men into Israel's hands, and they defeated them. Israel took over all the land of the Amorites who lived in that country, capturing all of it from the Arnon to the Jabbok and from the desert to the Jordan. Now since the Lord, the God of Israel, has driven the Amorites out before his people Israel, what right have you to take it over? Will you not take what your God Shamash gives you? Likewise, whatever the Lord our God has given us, we will possess. Now that's just an excerpt from one of the letters that he was sending to the king. He gives them a little bit of the history of why it is that Israel owns that land and why they needed to leave. But then he takes it a step further and he says, What your God gives you, your God Shamash, what he gives you, you can own it. You can possess it. But what our God gives us, we will possess. In essence, this is exactly what Jephthah was saying. My God is bigger than your God, and you're about to get your tail whooped. That's exactly what he was saying. That's how you boil it all down. My God is bigger than your God. And if your God happens to give you this land, live in it as long as you want. But that ain't going to happen, so pack your bags. We're going to drive you out of here. I love that about Jephthah. I really love that about him. Now, watch what happens. Because the king of the Ammonites rejects this whole thing. We're going to go to verse 28. The king of Ammon, however, paid no attention to the message Jephthah sent him. Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah. He crossed Gilead and Manasseh, 
passed through Mizpah of Gilead, and from there he advanced against the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord, If you give the Ammonites into my hands, whatever comes out of the door of my house to meet me when I return in triumph from the Ammonites will be the Lord's, and I will sacrifice it as a burnt offering. Jephthah had an intricate understanding that he could do nothing by his own power. He needed God. He really did. So he makes a vow before the Lord. The Old Testament makes all kinds of provision for people to make vows. You can read about it in the book of Leviticus. You can see what God has to say about the issue. You could make a vow before the Lord. God's only expectation was this, that if you made a vow to him, you fulfilled your vow. So Jephthah is making that vow because he knows that he needs God on his side. He knows that without God, victory is probably impossible. But with God, and we know this even in the New Testament, with God, all things are possible. Amen? Watch the victory. Here it comes. Verse 32. Then Jephthah went over to fight the Ammonites, and the Lord gave them into his hands. He devastated twenty towns from Aror to the vicinity of Mineth, as far as Abel Karamim. Thus Israel subdued Ammon. There's the victory. Jephthah always knew it was coming. He was a mighty warrior. He never questioned whether this was going to happen. He always knew it. And now here's the victory. Pretty exciting stuff, because his God is bigger than their God. His God's going to do what needs to be done. His God is going to accomplish this on his behalf and on behalf of the Israelites. Pretty cool story. Now, you know that Jephthah is actually mentioned in the New Testament. He's found in the book of Hebrews in the 11th chapter, which is the faith chapter. I want you to listen to what the writer says about him. Hebrews chapter 11. You don't have to turn with me. Stay in Judges chapter 11. Starting in verse 32, though. The writer of Hebrews says, And what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. Others were tortured and refused to be released so that they might gain a better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging, while still others were chained and put in prison. They were stoned, they were sawed in two, they were put to death by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains and in caves and holes in the ground. These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. God had planned something better for us, so that only together with us would they be made perfect. Jephthah was a man of faith. The victory that he experienced was a faith victory. That's what we just read because he always believed God could do it. He was one of these men that was forcefully advancing the kingdom of God and he was a forceful man, a force to be reckoned with as he accomplished those things. He was a man of faith and he experienced faith victories. Pretty cool. But within the midst of his story, there is seemingly some great tragedy. Let's go back to Judges chapter 11. We'll take a look at that tragedy. We're going to pick up in verse 34. As we get into it, you have to remember the vow that Jephthah made. He told the Lord that if he would grant the victory, when he returned home, whatever came out of his door first to meet him, he would sacrifice that to the Lord. Verse 34. When Jephthah returned to his home in Mizpah, who should come out to meet him but his daughter, dancing to the sound of tambourines? She was an only child. Except for her, he had neither son nor daughter. When he saw her, he tore his clothes and cried, 
Oh, my daughter, you have made me miserable and wretched because I have made a vow to the Lord that I cannot break. My father, she replied, you have given your word to the Lord. Do to me just as you promised, now that the Lord has avenged you of your enemies, the Ammonites. But grant me this one request, she said. Give me two months to roam the hills and weep with my friends, because I will never marry. You may go, he said, and he let her go for two months. She and the girls went into the hills and wept because she would never marry. After the two months, she returned to her father, and he did to her as he had vowed, and she was a virgin. From this comes the Israelite custom that each year the young women of Israel go out for four days to commemorate the daughter of Jephthah, the Gileadite. You see the tragedy? There it is. At first reading of this, it would appear that what Jephthah had to do was sacrifice his daughter, which most of us would believe means kill her. That's what it looks like at first glance. This is one of those passages in the Bible that it is very important for you to read critically. If you only read it on the surface and at first glance, that's exactly what you will believe. But if you will read it critically, there are certain things that will capture your attention and take you into the places that you really need to go with this that you can understand what happened. First thing is this. Jephthah was a believer in God. He had a history with the Lord. Because he had a history with the Lord, he understood the Old Testament law. And the Old Testament law forbid human sacrifice. He also knew that if he was going to sacrifice something on an altar, it would have to be at the tabernacle. The tabernacle at this particular time was in Shiloh, quite a ways from where he was at. He would have to take his daughter from where he was, get her all the way to Shiloh, and in the process, get around all of his friends and family members that knew what his intention was. There is biblical precedent of other people that have been faced with this same thing and have had people stand in the gap and keep them from doing it. Probably would have happened again. He had warriors around him that knew his God and loved his God. And they would have said, you can't do this, Jephthah. There's no way for you to do it. Then, if he did make it all the way to Shiloh and he got to the tabernacle, he would have to convince one of the priests to actually sacrifice his daughter. And remember, the Old Testament prohibited human sacrifice. And especially prohibited it if they weren't willing. So if she wasn't willing, he couldn't just take her there and say, take her life. Then as you study the rest of it out, you find out that Jephthah was probably a man of great wealth. He had all these conquests behind him, and when they had military conquest, what the leaders of that army would do is take all of their possessions. They would plunder their enemy. Because he had plundered all of his enemy, he had great wealth. And because he had great wealth, he would be able to follow an Old Testament law that is found in the book of Leviticus that says if you have made a vow to the Lord and you do not want to carry it out, you can pay a certain amount of money and redeem that vow. Which means this, he could have gone to the tabernacle, talked to the priest, the priest could have said to him, if you'll pay X number of dollars, you can leave here with your daughter. And it would have all been totally okay in the eyes of the Lord because God made provision for the redeeming of vows. He could have done that. But if you really look at it critically, here's what you'll find out. His daughter, even though she was willing to have her dad carry out the vow that he made before the Lord, was really concerned because she would not marry. So she said to her dad, Dad, I'm not going to be able to marry. Would you let me go out for the next two months and be with my friends? And they were weeping in the hills and probably partying in the hills and spending time together for two months because she would not marry. And when they went through with the sacrifice, 
it says that she was not married and she remained a virgin. So what's the implication of all of this? What was the sacrifice? That's the question. The answer is this. She was more than likely dedicated as a servant at the tabernacle and possibly later at the temple. Her life was given to living there, taking care of the things of God. She was willing to go through with the vow because that's what it meant. She just would never be able to marry. The vow meant that he would give up his line. The vow meant that she would never have children. The vow meant that she would spend her life in service to the Lord. It didn't bother her, except for one thing, that she wouldn't marry and she wouldn't be able to have children. That's the only thing that bothered her, because her faith was her father's faith, and his daughter's faith was his faith. Now let me show you why I think that could be the case. We're going to go to Exodus chapter 38. Exodus chapter 38, verse 8. They made the bronze basin and its bronze stand from the mirrors of the women who served at the entrance to the tent of meeting. There were ladies there all the time. They had been dedicated by their families. They had been sacrificed, if you will, by their families, sacrificed into the service of the Lord. And Jephthah's daughter was totally willing to do it. Today, though her name is not recorded in Hebrews chapter 11, today, every year, the single ladies in Israel spend four days celebrating her because she was a woman of faith just like her dad. They celebrate her. They celebrate what she was willing to do because she was a forceful woman of God that was forcefully advancing the kingdom of God. And so was her dad. They're the kind of people that Jesus was talking about in Matthew chapter 11. They're the kind of people that would sing songs like, I will not be moved, I will not be shaken, because I know who my God is, and I'm going to do what He asked me to do. And if that means that I have to forcefully advance the kingdom of God in a forceful way, I will do it. So help me, God. That's who Jesus was talking about. The church was built by people that had that kind of a mindset. We are here worshiping today because there were men and women before us that were willing to do those types of things to forcefully advance the kingdom of God. But somehow, over the course of the last 2,000 years, that kind of mindset has disappeared in the church. It really has. The church is not made up of forceful men and women that are willing to forcefully advance the kingdom of God. According to Erwin McManus, the church is made up of civilized people that are willing to, in a civilized way, worship the Lord within their own walls. But the church isn't made up of people that are willing to forcefully advance the kingdom. Forceful men and women don't always exist the way they used to. Let's think real quick about the way the church got started. Of the 14 apostles, some of you are thinking there were only 12. Where's 14 come from? Here it is real quick. There were initially 12 apostles. Judas was one of them. Judas killed himself. In Acts chapter 1, the apostles got together. They chose an apostle to take his place. His name was Matthias. He became the 13th apostle. The apostle Paul would later on say that he was the 13th apostle. He was the one that should have taken Judas's place. But God, in his permissive will, allowed them to cast lots and choose Matthias. So Paul became the 14th apostle. There were 14 apostles. Of the 14, if you remove Judas from the mix because he committed suicide, that leaves us with 13. Twelve of them died violent deaths. Twelve of them gave their lives in a violent manner for the cause of Jesus Christ. John is the only one that lived to old age, and Jesus told him that he would, and that wasn't a great existence. Before he died, he was exiled to the prison island of Patmos where he received the revelation of Jesus Christ that we know as the book of Revelation in the Bible. But he was in jail when he got that. 
There are some historians that would tell you that before he was exiled, he was actually dipped in a vat of boiling oil, and then he was sent to the island. It was not a great existence. Peter was crucified on a cross, but because he refused to be crucified in the same manner that his Lord was, he was crucified upside down. The apostle Paul was trapped. He was preaching the gospel, and they'd set him up for it. And after they caught him, they cut his head off. James was the first of the martyrs, the first of the apostles to die in the city of Jerusalem. And he gave his life willingly. All of them did. All of them did. Because they were forceful men and women of God. And they were forcefully advancing the kingdom of God, whatever it took. They would not be moved. They would not be shaken. And nobody could convince them to do anything different. That's the way the church started. But let me ask this. How many of you lay awake at night worried that you're going to lose your life or somebody's going to come cut your head off because you're a Christian? None of us. In the United States of America, this is just a foreign concept to us. Which means then that this concept of being a forceful person that is forcefully advancing the kingdom, we don't understand it. Because we don't have to worry about risks to our life and to our health because of our faith. But that's not true in other places around the world in the year 2012. We might think, yeah, that happened back in the biblical times, but folks, it happens today. There's a ministry called Open Doors USA that is focused on opening people's eyes to the martyrdom and the persecution of Christians around the world. Last week, they put out on their website statistics for the year 2011 for the number of Christians that lost their lives for the name of Jesus Christ. They couldn't list them all out, so they took the top three nations in 2011 and they gave their statistics. The leading nation for people that were killed for their Christianity is the nation of Egypt. There were over 300 people murdered because of their faith in Jesus Christ last year. If you watched what happened in Egypt last year, that's not a big revelation to you. They were in great turmoil. And they were in great turmoil as the Christians were fighting the Muslims. And 300 Christians, over 300 Christians that they know of, died because of their faith. Nigeria was the second leading nation. And there were over 60 that died there last year. Iraq is the third leading nation, and they had in excess of 30 that they know of that died. There's one young pastor right now that's in jail in Iraq, and he's made headlines for the past few months. He is sitting on death row. The Muslims have offered him the opportunity to walk out of jail if he will renounce his faith in Christ. He refuses to. His wife had been in jail prior to him. She has currently been released. He has small children at home. They have told him that if he will not renounce his faith, he will die. And he says, so be it. In essence, I can picture him and his entire congregation listening as he holds something up and says, I will fight for the heart of my king. And I don't care what it takes. But that's just not a concept that rings true for us because we have become so civilized. The church doesn't worry in America anymore about forcefully advancing the kingdom of God and therefore we're not breeding forceful men and women and shame on us. Shame on us. Because we will sing, I will not be moved, I will not be shaken, I will do what God wants me to do, but really when the time comes, a lot of us will step back into our civilized faith and we'll be moved and we will be shaken and we will bow and we should not. 
And that means that we have to figure out how to keep that from happening. And the only way that I know to do that is to become a forceful man or woman that is forcefully advancing the kingdom of God even in the world that we live into today. Amen? So how do we do it? Well, the Bible actually helps us with that. First thing is to understand what happens when we develop that type of a passion. Let me take you to the book of Psalms. Psalm chapter 37, verse 4. This is a psalm of David, and he writes, Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. That word delight can actually be translated, become passionate in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. We could take that and lay it next to Matthew chapter 11, verse 12, and read it this way, Become a forceful man or woman in the kingdom of God. And God will give you the desires of your heart. And when that type of passion kicks in, the desires of your heart, I, I promise you this, the desires of your heart will become the forceful advancement of the kingdom of God. God will give it to you. When you develop that type of passion and you live fueled by that type of passion, the kingdom of God will forcefully advance and you'll be part of it. But it requires you to love God so intensely that you can say, I will not be moved, I will not be shaken. I will do whatever God wants. I will fight for His heart. And I will do it, even if that means the very end of my life. That's okay. I will be a forceful man or woman, and I will forcefully advance the kingdom of God, and the desires of my heart will be realized. So you may still find yourself saying, how do I pull that off? I, I just, I don't know how to do that. Well, thankfully, John the Baptist actually tells us how to do it. Go with me to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 3. Luke, chapter 3. We'll start in verse 15. The people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Christ. John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but one more powerful than I will come, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And with many other words, John exhorted the people and preached the good news to them. Jesus would come and baptize them with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Folks, I believe in baptism. I believe it's necessary. I believe every Christian should be baptized. I believe it with all my heart because I believe the Bible teaches it. But I also believe that in the current day of the New Testament church... We've been really good at baptizing people with water. We've been really good at baptizing them with the Holy Spirit, and we have totally missed what it means to baptize people with fire. Fire is passion. Fire is the desire to be used by God. Fire is the understanding and the teaching to say, Lord, I want to be a forceful man or woman that is forcefully advancing your kingdom, and I cannot do it on my own. I need you. And that fire begins to burn, and when it burns, my heavens unbelievable things happen it really it, it's amazing so lord baptize me not just with water and not just with the holy spirit but baptize me with fire baptize me with a passion baptize me with a heart that says i want to be used and when that type of prayer is offered god responds when that type of prayer is offered the kingdom of god forcefully advances was thinking this past week about this church not the church as a whole i was just thinking about this church i do that a lot that probably doesn't surprise you either <clears throat> and i began to make a list 
of people that I believe have that fire. They are forceful men and women in the kingdom of God that are forcefully advancing the kingdom of God. I thought about the group of guys that I pray with on Sunday morning. They fit in that number. I thought about our elders. We'll be meeting together tonight. I I love our elders' meetings. I love going to our elders' meetings because they are forceful men of God that are forcefully advancing the kingdom of God. Then I began to just write out other names of people in the church, and I filled up a page, and I turned to the next page, and I wrote some more names, and I filled up that page, and I turned to the next page, and I was writing more names out. Because that type of fire exists in this church, and I know that this church is made up of forceful men and women that are forcefully advancing the kingdom of God. As the list got longer and longer, I I found myself saying, I've got to figure out some way to communicate this to the church. So I boiled it down this way. This is just my little list of forceful men and women of God. There are mechanics and maintenance workers in our church that have the fire of the Lord. Loggers and electricians that are forcefully advancing the kingdom. Teachers in both the Christian school and the public school fighting for the heart of the king as well as the hearts of kids. Bankers and business owners, construction workers and salesmen, homemakers and healers. And in parentheses, I wrote doctors and nurses. I'm I'm not a poet. Tim Monese is a poet. I'm not a poet. But every once in a while I rhyme something. I think that's kind of cool. There are preachers and politicians, both grocery store managers and grocery baggers, retired professionals and workers just getting started. And this is one of my favorites. There are students in middle school and high school forcefully advancing the kingdom of heaven. They are young men and women that are fighting for the heart of their king and they're moving the kingdom forward every day. Every day. That's this church. And that's cool. It really is. But within our civilized faith, we have begun to teach people that when we get to heaven, the words that we should long to hear from the Lord are, well done, good and faithful servant. And that's good because it's biblical. Those are good words. Well done, good and faithful servant. But you know, right now, at this very moment, what I long to hear from the Lord when I stand before his throne, these are the words. I want him to look at me and say, Phil, you're one of them. You are one of them. And the church that you were a part of, it was one of them. You are forcefully advancing the kingdom of God, and you are a forceful man. I gave you a few years on the earth, and really, if you think about it, during or in the scope of all of eternity, the time that we have on this earth is very limited. And God's expectation of you while you're here is that you will forcefully advance His kingdom. That's what He's placed in your trust. Be a good steward of it, so that when you stand before His throne, He can look at you and say, You figured it out. Matthew chapter 11, verse 12, You did it. You are one of them. That's what I want to hear from God. How about you? Amen. Amen. Both of us, we want to hear that. We really do. How many of you would say you want to be counted among that number? Amen. Amen. That's the way it should be. And I tell you what, that's the way the church grows. By forceful men and women that forcefully advance the kingdom of God and lay hold of it. Now, obviously, all of that begins in a relationship with Jesus Christ. If you do not have a relationship with him, have never had one, we want to talk to you about that. If you, uh, you find yourself saying there's some things that, that I need to take care of in my walk with the Lord, maybe you've never been baptized. And so you read Luke chapter 3 and you think, I want to be baptized with water and the Holy Spirit and with fire. You can be baptized this morning. You could be. Three people were in first service. We invite you to, to follow their lead. By the way, it was pretty cool. That was a family baptism. Travis Risley was baptized by Matt. 
Then he turned around, this is so cool, he turned around and baptized his mother, and then his fiance followed them into the water, and he baptized his fiance. It was fun. It was fun to be a part of. Things like that happen. If you want to talk to somebody about baptism, we'd love to talk to you about it. Maybe you have, have found yourself full of a passion and a fire, but you don't know what to do with it. Well, maybe what needs to happen is for you to join a church, to put your life and your influence with a body of believers and say, I want to be used. I want to be a part of what's going on here. Well, we'd like to talk to you about church membership as well. And maybe you've got some hurdles in front of you that keep you from being a forceful man or woman of God right now and you need somebody to pray with you. Maybe you have issues in other people's lives that you're praying for and it's just absorbing your thought life and your prayer life. You want to pray with somebody? You can do that. Whatever your needs are, we, we will spend all day long with you, all, all week long with you, however long it takes. We'll stay with you and help you through that, that you might become a forceful man or woman of God. So respond to the invitation. And if you want to wait and, and respond right after the service because you want to see everything else that's going on, we invite you to do that. Our elders will be here. Our staff will be here. There are decision counselors that will stay as long as you want because they are folks who will not be moved and they will not be shaken. And they believe in the kingdom of God. I invite you to stand with me and let's pray. Father in heaven, we go through these next few moments. I'm just praying that you do what only you can. Lord, inspire us to follow Jephthah's lead, his daughter's lead. Help us to be at a place where we can say we will not be moved. We will not be shaken. And we will be a force to be reckoned with in this world as we advance your kingdom. Lord, I know for some people that needs to begin in a walk with you. I pray that that will happen today. I pray that today will be a day unto salvation for them. For others, they need a church to be a part of. Would you let them join the body? And for others, they've just got some struggles they need you to take care of. I pray you'll do that. In Jesus' name, amen.